you know, one of the first things that I was taught in conducting class was that in concerts, you sit there, you stand there with your hands up, and you just wait for everybody in the audience to calm down. You you let the all of the coughs out. You let everyone who's crinkling paper, and you just wait for as long as you need to wait until it's time and mm-hmm. it's quiet. I feel like I have to do that before I press record because the, um, not snickerdoodle, what do you call those dogs? The labradoodles. <laughs> the labradoodle next door loves to talk. And um, his brother over there, who's a husky, when you get the husky going, it's, it's really something. So if y'all if y'all hear um, some noise coming from somewhere, right. it's the kids I waited up. and I tried. <laughs> it's the kids upstairs doing backflips off the jumping, sofa. Jumping off the bunk bed. But you know what? kids and the animals alike this the the space that we have indoors is the space you got this time of year that's right here in minnesota because it ain't no running around playing outside i've i've been the the new sort of block captain as far as keeping the uh, sidewalk cleared and i have to tell you i don't have a snowblower i'm not complaining but that's 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 some work y'all folks down south don't know about uh, 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 shoveling no snow. Just people have had heart attacks doing that. <laughs> oh, I think I've had a couple. Over, <laughs> but, so but you, no, you got to power on through. You, you got so, a handy snowblower now, though. Right. And so my question to you was: Do you feel it in your shoulders? Or are you getting cut? More than I feel it in my shoulders is my back. Maybe I need to lift with my legs more mm. as a as opposed to my back. That's age. You know, uh, and for folks who don't know, I, I I don't mean to patronize anyone, but I certainly didn't know. I didn't know what a snowblower was, but the way I explain it to my family down south now, it's like a, a winter lawnmower. It's like what you, <laughs> you, you know, you have the lawnmower for the winter huh. and you have the snowblower. I mean, you have the lawnmower for the summer and the snowblower for the winter, you know, it's, it's, it's right. that sort of thing. All right. Well, uh, in the first movement today, uh, once we get into it, we're going to uh, have a whole accidental dedicated to some of the folks that we've lost since the last time uh, we recorded. Uh, one of them is Meatloaf. So in in response to that and, and thinking about him as a, a actor, you know, more of, of an actor than a musician, I went back and watched Fight Club for the second time. So I think there's some magic in watching that movie for the first time and getting to find out how things roll around and the um, the mental health conversations that you can have surrounding that movie. Mm-hmm. I think watching it for the first time again also offers <laughs> a, uh, a, a unique perspective because you get to see the characters dealing with someone with multiple personalities, or I'm sure there's a more clinical phrase that we use these days, but I think watching Mm -hmm. that second time is as powerful and as magical as watching the first time. I'm sure you've seen it more than twice, but. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, I was probably one of those people that, you know, I shouldn't tell people how, how frequently I've watched that movie. (laughs) Yeah. Sure. There's, um, but, oh, now I fell off the the comment that I was going to make. Uh, Oh, isn't it interesting how, insomnia seems to be the catalyst for all of that mental illness. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And we, maybe we won't do it this opus, but being an overnight worker, there you go. It will, it will get you to the edge of losing your mind. And I'm not even trying to talk. I'm not trying to, I'm not being hyperbolic here. And that is when you, and that is when you start to realize that you are in fact, Jack's unabashed sense of, 
loneliness. <laughs> well, I, I wish I had a Brad Pitt character to go in there and right, no, so <laughs> and, like, and deal with the microphone because that was a lot sometimes. Yeah, so you uh, you really get a good idea on uh, when when you've been up and working the night shift, and you start watching, and you think. You know, he's got some valid points. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, you know, one of the things I love thinking about with that film is poison into medicine, as as we Buddhists talk about, taking a great fear and turning that into great power. I feel like that was the point of the fight club, getting all these men to just deal with something that they're afraid of, fighting somebody else, getting your head bashed in on concrete or whatever. And when you survive that you are a, a better person. I, I forget, or not a better person necessarily. I'm forgetting the phrase that they used in the movie, but basically it was, you know, your first time at Fight Club, you know, after your first fight, you're a, a bowl full of jelly. And, you know, by the time you come back, you're chiseled you're from wood or whatever wood. he said. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's something that we can take into all of our lives. You know, what is that greatest fear? Get into a fight is not my greatest fear. And if, if you want to expound on that with me, Let's do it. And, and please don't think I'm playing. So I say that because fighting, I think, should be viewed as an allegory in that film for the things that we are just unafraid to, to face. So maybe it's not fighting that we face that can make us bigger people or, or a more intentional people. Maybe it's talking to someone, having a conversation, dealing with some baggage that you're carrying mentally or, or whatever. I mean, what, what do you think as far as uh, that thing that you are afraid to face your biggest fear and turning, facing that into power? Uh, it's an interesting point, but I also have to, I, I have to wonder what it says about that part of our society. Mm -hmm in general because it it treats things as the military plus one everybody gets their ha their hair cut you know they make they mm -hmm. make you look alike you're stripped down to nothing and then they build you back up right so that's malicious right i mean isn't 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 that the building of a of an underground army yeah um i i think it's more fortune telling for me, that's what I see in it. More, talk, say more about that fortune telling. I think that if if you want to... Man, this is going to be stepping out. All right. So I think that a revolution, as outlined in Polonik's book, uh, could be the, the blueprint. The the, the class... I mean... Y'all heard the man. You want to talk about class solidarity? Y'all heard the man. All right. So you're saying you're ready. You already have the hair. And I'm sure you have some black clothing. Are you ready to go live in a dilapidated house and make soap and <laughs> do whatever you got? You know? I, I'm not there yet. Maybe I don't know what it's going to take to get me there. But today, no, I'm not. I'm not ready to go and stand on that porch. Well, I'm I'm not standing on particular people's porches and and begging for entry therein. To, you know, think whatever you want to about that. That that, <laughs> that creates that's the myth that creates the the, the entire mythology right. of the movement. Right. I'm certainly not shaving my head, at least not in this point in my life. But I am very much attracted to the that, idea. That's just of, not your fight club. Yeah, my, mine is mine is different. Mine is a little different. Our our fights are are, are fighting with words, right. you know, or something. I don't know. Getting high. Having Maybe you fun. have to grow your hair out. <laughs> oh yes. Oh, could you imagine like a a lock game, a a dread lock gang? And yeah, oh, I could, I could I could be in that. There. I could be in that. Anyway, welcome everyone to Opus <laughs> One Thirty Five. We are uh, trying to be revolutionary here, uh, but using music 
as our weapon. You know, it's a it's a lot of fear surrounding the platforming of certain genres of music, isn't there? There are a lot of program mm-hmm. directors and music directors and conductors and all sorts of folks that need to face that fear, face face that version of a fight club. But, you know, anyway, we're going to start this week with a downbeat from our beloved Mitch McConnell. I'm not even going to say anything about this downbeat. Let's let's just uh, play this excerpt here. I'm, this is from uh, The Guardian. What, what, what's your message for voters of color who are concerned that without the John L. Lewis Voting Rights Act, they're not going to be able to vote in the midterm? Well, the concern is misplaced because if you look at the statistics, African-American voters are voting in just as high a percentage as Americans. A recent survey, uh, 94% of Americans thought it was easy to vote. Uh, this is not a problem. When I hear Mitch McConnell saying those things, the first place my mind goes is back to the late, great Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You know, we, we spent a lot of time talking about him last week and reading quotes and all of those things. Scott, he has to be somewhere rolling 360s in his grave, mm. seeing the way that people are are uh, brushing to the side, the legacy of, of John Lewis and all the work that folks are trying to do. So th- that's one conversation. But I think it says a lot for him to name and cite, as he says, African-Americans and also Americans. What are, what are your thoughts on that? I, I, I want you to take it away. What's your response to that? The first thing that they'll do is explain it away that he misspoke, that he dropped a word. And yeah, I I make my living from talking too, and I misspeak. The thing is, dude, you can't afford it. You can't afford it because it's going to be seized upon just exactly as the way it is now. It's going to mobilize a whole new block of voters. Um, I, I think that he's got something serious to worry about now. So, so no judgment, safe space. Do you think... He genuinely misspoke. That he that he just happened to misspeak. I, I think that he let his thoughts out. See, that's my thing. I don't think he misspoke. I think he spoke. See, misspeaking would be he forgot him, to code switch. Exactly, misspeaking would be him checking himself and not saying what right. he means. I think he said what he means. So of you course, said the, you say the quiet part out loud mm-hmm. accidentally. Yeah. So I see the, what you're the, saying. the social media reaction I thought was interesting. So I had folks all over my timeline on Instagram and Twitter posting pictures of themselves. Hashtag I am American mm-hmm. showing the different shades of America and, and all that sort of thing. I, I, I wasn't going to participate in that because <laughs> I have issues mm-hmm. with America as many people of color do. But I think when we talk about, you know, try to expand the conversation, that has come from this, we really need to talk about liberating the term American and thinking about that phrase in a more truthful way, thinking about the many cultures and the many people that make up American. And then through that, we can get toward a renewed look at American music, even American classical music. I wonder, I often sit back and think, how did we get here. I think about uh, the American... All the time. I, I think about the American flag, for example. Yeah. When I see somebody flying an American flag, and th- I, maybe, I don't remember we had this conversation before, I can't help but to think that there is some racism there. And I, I hate admitting that because that shouldn't be the case, but I can't help but to but to feel that. Do you feel a similar way if you see a pickup truck or a or a, a sedan going down the street with an American flag behind it or a home with American flag. Outside. I know I know what you're talking about, because I've heard other people say the same thing. White people, 
say, you know, that, that they feel like uh, the American flag is overused to the point of being offensive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, um, it's, it's disrespectful to have the flag on a vehicle flapping around when you're not on the way to go and and shoot at something, you know, it's you. Well, you're not. You're not. Sometimes they are. No, this is. We're talking flag etiquette. Okay, okay. The 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 flag is not supposed to be put into a position where it will be damaged. It's not supposed to be up uh, after sundown unless there's a light, light on, it. on it. Like the, all I, this. Like I, I I understand all the rules. I guess the the way I think about it is: Do you think we can take the flag of the United States of America and through conversation, through discourse, change it into more of a, a prideful thing instead of a dog whistle for a certain type of yeah, politics. Yeah, I see. I'm sorry. I see where you, I see the direction you're getting at. Um, is that conversation going to happen now? No. <laughs> and and it's one of those conversations. I'm not sure how willing people are to have it. I, I don't care about flying an American flag. I'll, I'll, you know, I have Black Lives Matter flags. I certainly have um, the gay flag, you know, as, as, a, as, as a good, you know, uh, member of these uh, United States of America. But I don't know if, if I'm just going to die on the hill of we have to change the conversation to make sure that symbols of America are more representative of more people. That's just me. I see what you're saying. I, uh, of course, I'm not uh, diminishing the work of any person of color who wants to, you know, reframe the American flag. But, you know, when I think about the history of, the history of it, even, I understand that the red bars, you know, represent uh, bloodshed for America. But whose blood? You know, there was bloodshed for America before the Revolutionary War. You know, I'm thinking back to slavery, the mm -hmm. uh, the the way that they did the indigenous people. So yeah. in the same way, I don't know, uh, and this is an interesting place to go just for the <laughs> opening, but in the same way that we need to think again about the national anthem, considering those uh, verses that are not the first verse that speak to slavery and all that stuff, you know, in the same way we need to think about maybe one day shifting that, we have to think about shifting all of America's symbols toward a more equitable reality. I think it's the exact same thing as that phrase classical music. In the same way that classical music is much more and much more diverse and much broader than we have been traditionally taught, I see the same thing for words like America and American is much more diverse and much more broad than we currently think about. But it's through discourse that hopefully we can inspire in some people's mind a way to build a road toward changing things. Maybe one day I'll, I'll sit up here and sing proud to be an American and have my American flag and all of that stuff. But America owes us. And by us, I mean, people of color. I mean, uh, people who have been slaving under capitalism, you know, across culture and across race. America has some, has some money to put on the table and some resources to put on the table as do classical music's institutions. So let's go ahead and get into this opus. Scott Blankenship. And this 
Ishtriloquy, Opus 135. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in to new listeners. Thank you so much for being here. This is a podcast that takes the phrase classical music and recontextualizes it for today. We take conversations, stories, and even music that hasn't always been uh, put into proximity with that phrase classical music, and we put it there toward decolonizing that phrase to represent more people, more aesthetics, and more cultures. To returning listeners, thank you so much for your continued support. We couldn't do it without you. More information and past opuses can be found at triloquy.org. You can also find out how to donate there and to support the show in many other ways. Thank you so much for being here. In addition to your support, support for the Trilogy podcast comes from Springboard for the Arts, founded in 1991. Springboard for the Arts' mission is to cultivate vibrant communities by connecting artists with the skills, information, and services they need to make a living and a life. More information at springboardforthearts.org. Also want to send a shout out and thank you to the San Francisco Symphony. I'm currently partnering with them to uh, create some teaching modules where I'll be talking with musicians and uh, staff members and board members about reframing what they do and their approach to uh, uh, being a symphonic institution. I'm Scott, I'm actually going to be using excerpts from the Triloquy podcast as discussion points for some of these folks. So I'm really looking forward to that. Huge shout out to San Francisco Symphony for having me. And then uh, before we get into the first movement, I also need to thank and give a shout out to uh, the Free Radicals and the album uh, Border Crossed Me. We featured them on Triloquy uh, a little uh, sure. while ago. Um, I've gotten involved now. I'm, I'm, I'm putting together charts and mm. and uh, playing on these recordings. So I'll be sure to let y'all know when um, all of that comes up. So again, huge thank you to everyone. Let's hop into movement one. All right, I'm going to get us started really quick, Scott, before we get into our rest in peace and rest in power shout outs. I just need to give a natural to uh, the U.S. government, I suppose. Last week, I think it was in the Triloquy, I was talking about how, you know, Kamala Harris told us to Google it and, you know, figure out where you're going to get tested. It's up to y'all. Well, since we recorded, I think the next day even, I got an email notification that everyone can now order tests. I think it's two tests per household um, or per individual to stay up on your status. Basically, the United States government is saying, look, we're not going to support y'all anymore. You're on your own. So I hope that y'all are keeping yourself tested and, and making your best decision. I think there's conversation to have there. Um, but I just want to make sure folks know that obviously went into my spam folder. (laughs) Also, you didn't even get the email. No. (laughs) Well, uh, um, I don't want to tell y'all to Google it. <laughs> see, now see now I'm being problematic. Now I'm the problem. Okay, don't just Google it. I won't say that. In in the description of this, I'll be sure to uh, keep a uh, or include a link as to how you can uh, get the supplies because, again, we're on our own. Anyway, uh, that's, that's a quick natural. I want to get um, started, though, officially and send up some sharps to the many people that we have lost since the last time we recorded is something about getting, I'm not telling you nothing, Scott, but getting older and seeing these people that you're just so used to seeing and hearing about and, and, and knowing of their, of. Yeah, you were fans of knowing about their existence and then seeing the news that they've passed on. So it's really something, you know, getting us started here. Um, a huge rest in power to Ian Alexander Jr. If you don't know, um, he was the son of Regina King, who we talked about a lot uh, on this podcast. Um, he's died by suicide and, you know, warmest thoughts to their complete 
family, a- everyone over there um, uh, uh, on that team. You know, I'll, I'll say this. I've been there and I feel comfortable saying that. I know what it feels like to just want to turn the lights out, proverbially speaking. I have felt that and I'm grateful to have gotten on the other side of that, but I couldn't have gotten on the other side of that without the resources that I have the privileges of having access to, therapy, other bits of professional help, a community that I feel uh, comfortable speaking with, you know, friends that I don't keep anything from, you know, all my business mm-hmm. is, is, is out there. Mm-hmm. We need to prioritize mental health in the same way that we prioritize physical health. People go and get their uh, teeth cleaned at the dentist. People go do these sleep studies, you know, your annual checkup. We need to make sure that we are prioritizing mental health as well. It's very, very, very important. Go find a, go find a therapist. Y'all, we, we all need it. We all need that help. Good luck, man. When I was looking, it seemed like I would find somebody that looked like they might be a match and they're not taking new patients. You know, and, and that means you have to keep looking, right? Because again, I'm saying, get ready. You know, right. if you're going to you be, be prepared to not just pick the first link right. on your Google search and find the person you're going to talk to. Especially if you're, I mean, you, you said the right match, because when I was uh, shopping for therapists, I needed it to be a black woman. And I don't um, st- study with her. I don't study myself with her anymore. Um, but, you know, that 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 is something that's important to me. I always make sure that the folks uh, helping me maintain my mental health can speak directly to my experiences and, and my perspective as a human being. And the, the, the bigger this conversation gets, the more people are looking for mental health resources. So I get it, but the resources are out there. And I hope that, you know, each and every one of you can just, you know, put out the effort to keep going until you can find that person uh, who, who can help you maintain your mental health, because it's, it's just as important as physical health. There's, uh, there's a couple businesses I can think of that do that short, like if you just need a therapist to get you through a short term thing. Sure or an emergency sort of situation. I think better help is one of them where you can just talk or text with somebody just in the moment. Yeah. There's a, there's one called talk space. Yeah. So consider that if you can't find somebody right away. Yeah, absolutely. So again, uh, rest in power to uh, Ian Alexander Jr. and warm thoughts to Regina King and the, and the entire family over there. Um, I also want to wish a rest, a quick rest in power to Louis Anderson. I don't, uh, know him much outside of there was a cartoon when I was a kid called Life with Louie. Did you watch that? Oh yeah, that was great. Okay, so we we have that show. I don't remember anything about it other than oh my that. dad hassled me for watching it. Oh really? Yeah. What are you watching cartoons for? Because this is really <laughs> funny. That's why he 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 was a funny guy and and of course you know coming to America and coming to America seeing Louie Anderson uh in in that the Shiki at uh what's the name of the rap? McDowell's Zamunda yeah oh. That warmed my heart. Um, and apparently Louis Anderson um, is a, a St. Paulite. I, I, I recently Born and raised in St. Paul, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, a, a, a huge figure in more ways than one. And again, we talked about fat phobia last week, right? So yeah. a huge figure in more ways than one, in a positive way, who touched many of our lives in, in, in many ways. I, you know, I, I think there's a, a special place if you go back into the uh, certainly 60s, 70s, but even up into the 80s and early 90s when you had movies like Coming to America, I think there's something to be said about the white people who were involved in the black 
projects that there, there, there must have been some rapport or something right. that you know cultivated a relationship there I, I right. just love seeing it and love thinking about it rest in power to Louis Anderson we also have to bring up Andre Leon Talley where are, are, were you very familiar uh, with him or, or his legacy or his work I heard he, I believe he had like a two night two hour interview with Terry Gross on Fresh Air that I listened to. Mm-hmm. And that must have been in the early 2000s, mid 2000s, probably. Yeah. And incredible figure. I'm, I'm yeah. actually I'm actually going to uh, include a, a link to uh, in the description a little bit more about Andre Leon Talley. Um, it says here uh, he was a trailblazer, a legend, an icon. His uh, career trajectory is well known working with a delectable mix of it people and it publications, including Diana Vreeland, Andy Warhol, and then, of course, Vogue. He became Vogue's first black male creative director back in 1988. I learned about him initially from watching America's Next Top Model back in the uh, early 2000s. He was, he was always the guest judge that was really fighting for the black women on the show. You know, fashion and modeling has come a long way. And even um, as late as that television show, there was a specific body type. There was a specific skin tone Mm. that was centered. And Andre Leon Talley worked hard to make sure that he was shaking up those norms. So I really um, honor the work that uh, he he did as a as a as a figure out here. You know, fashion. Go ahead. Was he the make it work guy? Make it work. No, that was, I forget that man's name. And you're thinking of a different show, but. <laughs> well, that's because I haven't seen it. So, yeah. but, but no, but, but, but you're, you're, you're making a great point in the way that fashion and high fashion and all of those things seem far away and relatively unimportant to most people. Oh, we can mix up the shows and the, uh, uh, and the, and the individuals. Do you not think that folks feel that way about so-called classical music? You sure. know, so how, sure. so, so. I, I think that there are connections that we can make between making fashion more relevant and making Western classical music more relevant. I would argue that fashion is far more relevant because even those of us who aren't shopping at Balenciaga and um, and Off-White and all of these places, the trickle down of those runways makes it to Target or Walmart or H and M or wherever folks you know wear their wear their clothing here in Minnesota. You know you're you're wearing some uh, a plaid pattern now. Once upon a time, plaid on the human body was put on the runway as this avant garde or you know people will never you know and it, and it, and it, as uh, Meryl Streep said in uh, Devil Wears Prada, it trickled down into whatever bargain bin that you bought your your when she was talking about the color cerulean. <laughs> oh. Great great film. If I you've was ne- going to say no, this is Trunk Club. Uh, uh, Andre Leon Talley wasn't in the Devil Wears Prada, but you you should watch it if you haven't. I, I think that's I have. A, all right. It, it's a it's a right. it's a cool movie with all my time. And and, and I think that you can compare that to so-called classical music you know make making it work I, I i i hate that i'm forgetting the the name of that man but i've seen him I, I was in new york one time and i walked past him on the sidewalk he was walking his little poodle or what or, or whatever it was he teaches up at the new school but anyway uh rest in power to andre leon talley and then the, uh, the final rest in peace rest in power we have is for the artist known as Meatloaf. Mm-hmm. I don't really know his music or anything. Take take us to uh, the time when people were listening to him on the radio or when he hit it big. Or Bad whatever. Out of Hell is one of the top selling 
Um, I guess now you would find it in the classic rock bin, but it was just rock in the day. So he was a rock artist. Right. And, uh, you know, known for his um, dramatic stage antics and um, his presentation style. But where I came into contact with him was in the wedding business. Uh, wedding receptions frequently would have uh, Paradise by the Dashboard Light as a special request. And that is a meatloaf song. That's a meatloaf song. Okay. And it's about making out and sex in, in your car. And in the middle of the song, there is actually a baseball game. And if you can time it, if you're at a reception and if you can play that song at just the right time where everybody's hammered enough mm-hmm. to sing like karaoke, okay. but not hammered enough to get into a fight, then you could usually find somebody who would reenact the baseball game and then the you know the the men and the women would stand in line and they'd and they'd sing the lines back and forth to one another. So it was like an audience participation thing if you could time it right. Okay, and then of course I'm thinking about the whole allegory of you know making it to second base, home yep. run, or whatever, yep. whatever all that oh, stuff. Oh, safe, means. safe. He's safe at third. <laughs> oh, well, are, then, are you ever safe at third? <laughs> and then she comes, and then she comes in and she's like, "Stop right there before we go any further." I want to know if you love me. And he, and he makes her, and, and she makes him say it. Have you ever dealt with that? You don't have to answer. Uh, <laughs> nope. My, my, you know, my, you, you're talking about uh, not too drunk to, uh, or not drunk enough to get into a fight. My, my parents used to say that you didn't throw a party unless there was a fight at the party. There was a fight at their wedding reception. Was there? <laughs> over, right. over something. Anyway, um, you know. Was so, it the bride? <laughs> no, my parents weren't involved. My, as a matter of fact, they had they were already gone, and the party was still going. And anyway, you know, I'll yeah. I'll, 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 I'll let my mom on here one time to tell y'all. That's how story. I discovered his music. I don't I don't own his albums. Yeah, I don't. Um, I'll, 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 I I know more from film. All I knew him from, um, well, first of all, I only understood that he had passed away because I saw people uh, tweeting, hashtag, his name was Robert Paulson. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, what ha- what happened to him? So I Googled it and, and all that sort of thing. So I was, you know, that, that, that was the only real way I had engaged his artistry in any way watching that film other than... Rocky Horror Picture Show. Mm-hmm. And I've seen that film a lot, but I never realized that it was Meatloaf who was one of the characters Eddie. in it. Yeah, that that's that's really something. You know, so so many legends uh we've lost, but so many legends who live forever now. You know, we, you know, we're talking about Louis Anderson and, and all of these folks, you know, the spirit of these people will will always be around, at least in the conversation. So uh, to get us um, into our next accidental, Scott, you've uh, suggested a tune featuring Meatloaf from the Rocky Horror Picture Show. As Eddie, his uh, his big number, Hoppatooty, Bless My Soul. One of the things I really love about that film is that every time I see it, 
it's like I'm at a concert. The last time was over whenever I played that concerto down in Austin. The theater just mm. ha- it was Halloween weekend. The the theater happened to be playing it. We saw it and we we're like, cool. oh, okay, so let's cool. go. Man, what's the main character? Uh, the main actor's name? He was also in Home Alone too. Oh, his name is uh, Curry. Um, his last name is uh, Tim Curry. Tim Tim Curry. Yep. I mean bodied he was the uh bodied the performances he was the devil in the film legend okay see i don't i don't tom know tom cruise film. okay yeah I, I just know him in rocky horror and home alone too as the as the receptionist Clue. but i mean goodness gracious the performances yeah in that film i would have loved to been at the sits probe if they did that where you're just they, you're not acting anything but you're just performing the songs in a rehearsal i mean the full voiceness of the performances i'm not big on musicals because i feel like it's more hollering and screaming than singing <laughs> i said it but this is an exception mm. for me i can't wait till the next time i get to see it and i know that since we've lost meatloaf there's going to be even more people. I mean, I, I could picture a standing ovation after his big feature. I've, I've been at relatively tame uh, showings of Rocky Horror. Mm-hmm. And then I've been at the ones where they have every prop and do you bet. <laughs> everything. You bet. It's gotten to the point. I've seen theaters put on the uh, front door of the theater, no rice, because I guess rice mm-hmm. is particularly hard to clean up. Anyway, uh, rest in peace and rest in power to all of those folks. I want to move on uh, to our next accidental. I'm going to give this one a sharp. I'm reading here from rollingstone.com. Jay-Z and Meek Mill team up to block rap lyrics from being used in court. Let me read a little bit. Jay-Z is leading a list of music industry titans, throwing their support behind a proposed New York state law that aims to stop prosecutors from using rap lyrics as purported blueprints to alleged crimes. The rap superstar Jay-Z born Sean Carter if y'all don't know, is teaming up with Meek Mill, Big Sean, Fat Joe, Kelly Rowland, Yo Gotti, Killer Mike, Robin Thicke, and many others as celebrity signatories on a new letter urging state lawmakers to make the recently proposed bill titled Rap Music on Trial a State Law. Um, When we shed light on the way rap lyrics are used in court, I think we have to start with the conversation that rap isn't solely and purely about violence and murder and all of those things. I feel like hopefully the general conversation around hip hop music has evolved beyond so-called, um, uh, I'm I'm trying not to say the B word, but bees and hoes, you know, as, Mm -hmm. as, has, uh, has been traditionally uh, approximated to hip hop music. Uh, before we turn on the mics, I was talking about how we've platformed Megan the stallion all the time and she's not, talking about uh popping a gun she's talking about popping something else Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. the point is it's so much bigger than that so i think that's the first thing we have to understand and when we understand that for me it begs the question why is hip-hop specifically at the center of this conversation what do you think about um the use of country music or or uh, theater scripts or radio breaks all of these artistic expressions potentially being allowed in court if this doesn't pass it's a slippery slope isn't mm-hmm. it yeah they they might become a victim of the very law that they're trying to or or, or the very thing that they're trying to do there right it might happen to them right boy and then when the foot's on the other shoe doesn't it suck um i would I would venture that there isn't anything out there that I would 
be embarrassed about to not wanting it to be found mm -hmm. for court proceedings. But then again, I haven't killed anybody either. So 21 mm -hmm. Savages is, is 21 Savages. Is that the name of the artist that talks about a lot? You know, how many people you shot a lot? Oh, OK. How come on. Come on. Knowing your hip hop. Yes, so, that's 21 Savage. I'm not trying to be that guy on MSNBC. <laughs> I'm not trying to be that guy. All sure. I'm saying is that I've heard you play it. And I mean, he's yeah, yeah, he's yeah, he's yeah, using yeah, hyperbole. Yeah, Mm -hmm. He's using ghoulish overkill. It's ghoulish overkill. Mm -hmm. So is is that up for it? You know, the vague references to violence or to murder or to something that you stole or something like that? I mean, is aren't we really getting into a, a bad area? <laughs> I mean, you're, listen, I think we all have things that we don't want in court. So... Again, I make I, when I made the point of rap is so much more than stealing and killing. Yeah. The point I'm making is that the slippery slope is that anything can be put in there. So no, maybe what you say here on Triloquy or a radio break of yours doesn't connect you to a murder, but maybe that connects you to your complicity in an issue. And they find a, a an excerpt mm -hmm. from Triloquy where you're tripping over your words when it comes to black folks or women or something. And, and the prosecution is like, you see, he's not even comfortable talking about it. So of course he would give such and such the such and such to whatever, you know, so I, that's really what I think is the, the slippery slope. We can't can't take artistic expression and turn it into some sort of objective truth. I think that's the problem with Western classical music in the first place is that we're taking art and we're drawing objective lines around it. Mm. Lines like excellence, lines like appropriate for radio, lines like um, uh, engaging to our traditional audience or what they might call a broader audience or whatever. So that that's more of the slippery slope I'm coming down. Mm. I know that there are a lot of people that are out there and they're like, oh, well, if, if uh, such and such rapped about killing somebody and they actually did it well that was their fault for for rapping about it in a song i i hear that argument but my my response to that is we're talking about artistic expression and quiet as it's kept most of these hip-hop artists haven't done half this stuff that they're rapping about anyway so we can't conflate right. artistic expression to rule of law then johnny cash would have been locked up exactly he for shot him in arena yeah uh, and didn't he also oh no who's the man that shot the lieutenant but not the sheriff or the sheriff but not the lieutenant <laughs> oh that's uh that's eric clapton right and, and Bob, so, so there's Bob all sorts there, there's all sorts of stuff yeah but um go ahead go ahead no i forget there was one other there was um you can you can find all sorts of Tom Waits talked about uh, 16 shells from a 30 out six. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it, it's, I don't know. I'm going to step out and say it seems targeted to me. Oh, targeted toward whom or toward what? Come on, man. Rap listeners, rap artists. And, and, and what do Black they, people. Thank you. Is that, thank come on. you. <laughs> you. You want me to lead everybody by the hand? People know what I'm talking about. I'll, I'll I'll save my response to that question so this for the triloquy. So this is going to come back around and get me arrested. This comment. I'll I'll, I'll put a link uh, to this story uh, in the description. I I just think it's very interesting mm. and uh, very poignant. I mean, the my words here on this podcast is called triloquy, right? So I'll say my words on this podcast have been used against me. Uh, an excerpt of this podcast was cited one one day. Not not today. We're, we're going to wait for it. But one day 
I'm going to play the recording of, of my getting fired and the triloquy excerpt that was used as a downbeat, because I think this is the same thing we're talking about. We're talking about artistic expression. We, you know, we cite our sources and we talk about serious things, but at the end of the day, uh, and maybe I should just say it for legal purposes, this is for inter entertainment purposes. If you're getting your politics especially or anything else from this podcast that is not the purpose we're trying to get y'all to think about classical music in a different way and to inspire you to your own action so uh, or, or or maybe hold me accountable you know I, I i say what i mean and mean what i say but at the end of the day i don't think we can take artistic expression and put it in a courtroom because that's just not fair because you know, like 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 we've already laid out. We're not talking about Johnny Cash and Tom Waits and them music in there. Mm -hmm. We're talking about these rap artists' music. So, uh, to get us to our final accidental for this first movement, we're gonna hear a little uh, orchestral treatment of some uh, some of Jay Z's music. This is provided by the Kaleidoscope Orchestra, a tune that uh, I'll tell y'all the title of after we get done hearing a little bit of it. favorite things about this Jay-Z composition, it's Jay-Z and Kanye technically, is that you get a lot of variations on the title based on who's talking about it. The song, for, for those of y'all who don't know, is called Niggas in Paris. But when you get people to talk about it on radio and, and different platforms who are not Black, you get things like um, people in Paris, Parisian individuals, you know, okay. <laughs> all kind of variations okay. <laughs> on the title so that they are saying that word. How, how would you, if, if in, in some universe you had to put that recording on the radio, what phrase would you choose to use in naming it and telling people what this toot is. <laughs> I suggest Parisian individuals, but but do you have a, a better one? <laughs> April in Paris. <laughs> you say April in Paris. <laughs> anyway. I don't uh, know. Shout out to the uh, Kaleidoscope Orchestra. I only see white people in this video, so I wonder what they were saying <laughs> amongst themselves. All right, it's, it's, it's time to uh, rehearse Parisian individuals, everyone. Let's get it out. <laughs> Maybe they had a bassoon bleep. <laughs> right, or, or something. But no, because they, nothing needs to be bleeped because no one needs to be saying it, right? I got you. All right, well, uh, we have one more accidental. Uh, you have one that uh, you brought in, Scott. Which yeah. accidental is this getting? I'll give this one a sharp. This one is on news.com. Columbia.edu came out three days ago on the 20th from Columbia News. Uh, John McWhorter talks about his new book, new book, Woke Racism. Now, Garrett, we talk about this very thing a lot on the podcast, the idea that some of these uh, efforts that organizations are making to be more equitable are sometimes mm -hmm. detrimental. Right. I would say and, more times than not, but uh, I'm okay. So, um, a lot of times this comes up, we don't always flesh it out and it isn't, 
you know, always backdrop the way that this article is. So I wanted to bring this in so that people could look at it as they start to think about any DEI work that they're doing in their organization or on their own. Give us, give us a little bit from the article for folks who aren't right. familiar with what we're talking about. Uh, in Woke Racism, McWhorter shows how, his, how this new religion's claims to, quote, dismantle racist structures actually infantilize black, is, did I say, uh, yeah, infantilize black Americans, set black students up for failure, and pass policies that are disproportionately, that disproportionately damage black communities. He shares scripts and encouragement with, uh, with those trying to deprogram friends and family and offers a roadmap to justice. What minefield is he stepping into there? You know, for me, when I, when I think about, first of all, I want to, I want to, give him a, a, a congratulations. I'll, I'll hit the applause button because this is a conversation that we need to have more and more and more, especially today. We need to have this conversation more than we needed to have it five years right, ago right. because everyone posted a black square, right? Everyone right. had a Black Lives Matter statement. Um, what you know? What is poignant for me, what I think is important to note from what he's getting at is that this is not for people of color. This is for white folks and people who are not black gatekeepers to understand that a lot of these initiatives solidify the institutions and their place in the ecosystem because it's the so-called quote unquote right thing to do to initiate fellowship programs and outreach and, and all of these things. But at the end of the day, that isn't actually dismantling racism. It's just making you seem like one of the good institution. So th th that's what I think people really need to think about when they think about this concept and, and think about this book, that this is material that the most well-meaning of people really need to take in so that they understand the point that uh, uh, this, this uh, dismantling racism and racist structures is very different than what most of the institutions are doing, certainly what most of the arts institutions are doing. So as you know, you do a lot to name things. Um, do you think that neo-racism is apt? I think neo-racism is a, a very poignant way of, of thinking about it. You know, I, I can't hear the, the word neo without thinking about the matrix. And, uh, you know, uh, again, one yeah. of the, one of the things I loved about that last movie that came out, the matrix four is that the, the system of oppression, you know, was the, the digital illusion was based on taking your hugest desires and trivializing them and reframing them into something that can be used to oppress you. So when I think about neo-racism in that way, especially when I'm thinking about the musical connections, I'm thinking about the idea of fellowship programs, the, the idea that we have to find budding talent and making sure they have a way into orchestras and these other institutions when the talent is there. Mm -hmm. The black people who can fill these roles are there. They're just being systemically kept out. I'm thinking about um, on or off the job training for people of color. The idea that there are um, uh, respectability politics that we have to follow if we want positions in these institutions. You know, I even think about programming, you know, even on the uh, Western classical side, 
we we can hear from Florence Price and uh, uh, Joseph Bologna and all of these people all day. Mm -hmm. That is not the way we treat the music of uh, Jeffrey Mumford or or some of these um, other more experimental or uh, more contemporary black composers and, and, and black music makers. And then, you know, the, the one that just gripes me to the core is the fact that safe black people, so-called safe black people are the ones that are selected for positions or, or especially outward facing positions. And of course, by safe black people, I mean black people that aren't going to challenge the white people within their institutions and within their periphery uh, toward anti-racism in an active way. So when I hear the phrase neo-racism, those are the things that I think about the systems that appear to be working in conjunction with things like diversity, um, but in actuality, just dig heavier stakes into the aesthetics and to the cultures of these institutions. I think that this is an example of how you can go along and think that you're doing the right thing and have something like this be like, you know, you're juggling and all of a sudden something new has been thrown into the mix, you know, yeah. that you have to consider. So uh, the book is called Woke Racism, How a New Religion Has Betrayed Black America by Professor John McWhorter. Uh, just, um, I, I think it's important to look at this and understand how this can be incorporated in your mm -hmm. your own work or your own uh, industry. And again, we're, we're going to get into this a little bit in the fourth movement today, but this is not about anyone feeling guilty or feeling bad. I think every time uh, folks find themselves in that corner, oh, this isn't about feeling guilty or X, Y, and Z, you are centering the wrong thing. You're centering yourself and your feelings instead of the work that has to be done. Mm -hmm. Because I'll speak for myself, I it, it is not my goal to make white people feel guilty or feel bad. I, I really don't care about that. It's my goal to liberate arts spaces, to liberate so-called classical spaces. So if feelings are hurt there, it's not about me trying to do that. I think it's about the individual needing to decenter themselves and their perspective and think about something else. Mm. Um, you know, and also, you know, while I'm thinking about it, before we uh, move on to the second movement, I have to say, I hope in this book, he speaks to all white institutions doing this work. How well, how effectively can you do the work if the if you don't have a, a diverse body, you don't have a diverse orchestra, you don't have a diverse staff? How nuanced can the conversations actually get? Right. How real can the conversations actually get? If there's no one within that echo chamber challenging the norms that have been standard for a generation, o over a generation. Sure. So, you know, as we move forward and, and all of these things, it's hard for me to even, you know, give any credence to uh, fellowship programs specifically. That, that That's the one that, that uh, irritates me the most because, first of all, most of them are ageist. Right. They're centered on a certain age of people when we talk about fellowship programs, you know, and again, it ignores the fact that the talent is there. There are black people that can play any instrument of the orchestra to the uh, to the level of anyone else in the orchestra. They just need to be given the opportunity. I 
I exist as a content creator, as do many other people who could fill roles in terrestrial radio. So, mm -hmm. you know, a, a fellowship program toward cultivating that talent is ridiculous. There are even uh, organizations out here, organizations that even center diversity, that have programs that prepare people for the professional, uh, the so-called professional field of arts administration, you know, I think that's problematic because what what are you training them to do? To wear a tie and to pull their hair back and to speak respectfully to their to their white boss, their to their white overseer. I think all of these things we have to consider as we move forward in DEI work because. Uh, it's it's uh, it, it is a new type of racism, a, a neo racism that we that we really have to face. It's important perspective. Check out the link. It's in yep. the description. Um, so we're going to uh, transition into the second movement. Uh, you, you had a, a piece of music that you thought would be a, a good outro out of uh, this this conversation. Talk, talk to me a little bit. Uh, Omar Thomas is uh, a very young composer. Uh, he also was like 23 when he was brought on. I forget what university he started teaching. He was still a graduate student no when he way. started teaching music theory. Um, and he has experience in jazz and classical. He played trombone, plays trombone. And I read a quote from him where he said that as he was learning, he was not able to play music that spoke to his experience as a black person. Mm -hmm. And so he writes music that does that, that he wished that he could have played. And what a declarative state uh, statement I am is. And that's uh, one of the tracks and also the title track from Omar Thomas Large Ensemble. That's uh, an album that you can find at omarthomas.com. talked about it before i'm gonna say it again in in the spirit of triloquy <laughs> uh you know just to put a, a a bow another bow on that conversation black composers are beginning to get commissioned by a lot of the major orchestras okay it's about five or six of them that the orchestral industrial complex has decided are good enough for their spaces because they also had commissions and performances with this major orchestra and this other major orchestra and this other major orchestra. Mm -hmm. We also have to reframe and rethink about the way we uh, use words like excellence, even the phrase black excellence, because what is the measure of that? If the measure of that is approximation to one of these orchestras, which all of them are predominantly white institutions, how is that uh, equation playing out in our psyche if every time we use that phrase excellence we're thinking about a black person who has some proximity to a predominantly white institution these are all the ways in which neo-racism as as the writer uh, has put it plays out 
and and manifest. And we need to have honest, uh, uncomfortable conversations about how we can dismantle that neo-racism. For me, that looks like orchestras hiring a black person. I don't want to hear about your fellowship program. I don't want to hear about your short-term contract. I want to hear about your orchestra saying, hey, we have a spot in the violin section. We know that this black violin player, this black woman violin player can sit in the section and and uh, and and play at the same level, perform at the same level. So we're just going to bring her on. We need to see that across the industry, arts administration, orchestras, academic academia, especially classical radio and everything in between. That is what radical uh, uh, decolonization looks like, really dismantling racism and being an anti-racist, in my opinion, is working in that way. And to the person who says, oh, well, it's unfair, I mean, j just to get hired for the uh, sake of your race and X, Y, and Z, well, because of my race, because of our race, certainly for women, because of their uh, gender, they're for trans people, I, I could go on, people with uh, different abilities, because of those aspects of their lives, they have to deal with specific challenges. So I don't think there's anything wrong with because of those aspects of their lives that they get certain opportunities, because that has certainly played out Conversely, mm -hmm. we just don't always uh, contextualize it and think about it Good that point. way. Yeah. So, um, shout shout out to um, I'm sorry that I'm uh, forgetting the writer's name. Shout out to Omar Thomas. I can't wait to check out the book, but I will repeat myself and say the book is not for me. The book is for y'all, everybody who thinks they're doing the good work. And thank you for sticking around all the way up to the second movement where Scott and I take the second ending. Uh, we take a piece of music that we've been listening to all week. And instead of repeating it fully, we take the second ending and talk a bit about why we were listening to it. How about you go first this week? What were you, what have you been listening to in the earbuds? The last three or four weeks I've been doing better about keeping in touch with some of my old crew in Omaha. Mm -hmm. You know, the Saturday morning coffee conversation for a half hour, whatever, mm -hmm. or the text exchange that you, you get into every other day. Yeah. I've just been making more of a point to be in touch with, you know, like Scott Working, my buddy Doug Duchamp, you know, uh, the old gang. Shout out to the homies. Right. And um, I started to listen to Rilo Kiley. Now they're an LA-based band, but they did record a record at Saddle Creek in Omaha, Saddle Creek Records, when... You know, the early 2000s, there was this blossoming Omaha sound. Bright Eyes uh, was uh, was coming out of there. Uh, Los Desperacidos, um, Cursive, all, all these sort of bands were getting notoriety, and it was sort of an Omaha flavor. Mm -hmm. And there's one track by Rilo Kylie that they produced there called The Execution of All Things that I listened to a couple times because not only is it just kind of a a fun vibe to listen to an upbeat tempo but the lyrics are dark and it shows you that you know you can you can have those feelings and all those thoughts and still bump with it and still have some sunshine about it sure let's listen to a little bit of this opening here I really like how that builds and I, exactly. and, and I hear a very easy uh, road toward 
not that it needs transcription to fit into so-called classical spaces, because I don't think it needs to. But if we're talking about orchestral performances and that sort of thing, the the blueprint sounds like it's there. That that sure that, that sounds like it would work perfectly for a, a live instrumental ensemble. But there's uh, one spot in it in the lyrics that made me smile, and I would go back to it and listen to it a couple times. Uh, that says, um, bring with you history and make your hard-earned feasts. Then we'll go to Omaha to work and exploit the booming music scene. And just one one final thing here. Jenny Lewis, I love you. I want to confess my undying <laughs> affection for you. And all of my respect as well. I love that aesthetic. It reminds me, and I'm sure they're not even similar genres or anything, but it reminds me of this band called Best Coast. Sure. Um, love it. It just reminds me of a maybe, as you've already said, a, a sunny day, top down on the car, you don't got to go to work. You got troubles, but chilling. they're but they're in the rearview mirror, right? Because now. because we all got troubles, right? But right. It, it's it's good every now and again to put those troubles in the trunk of the car and deal with them. You know, when you get wherever you're going, check or, out Rilo Kylie. Yeah, bravo! Shout out to them. Well, uh, my second movement this week, uh, I want to talk a little bit about speaking different languages with your instrument. Uh, and before we get into that, I guess. Uh, are you proficient or have any proficiency in uh, any other languages other than English? If there's a language that if you had to get around in the best you could, what, what language would that be? I'd have to go to Spain or Mexico. Okay. A also, Spanish, a Spanish speaking. You're, you're a Spanish, uh, a, yeah. a, a Spangle. A Spanglish. A, a, a Spangler? I, I, was, I was trying I'm to a think. Spangler. A, 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 Sp a Spanophone, like they say, Francophone or, or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. Well, uh, you know, for, for me, it's uh, uh, Japanese, Junin, Gurai, Nihongo, Debin, Kyoshimashita. You know, I can, I can uh, make my way around in Japanese, but um, oh, oh, maybe that's actually a good connection. So uh, it's the music of a Japanese composer. His name is Koji Kondo that I've been thinking about. So Dell has been uh, playing back through a video game called the Ocarina of Time from the Legend of Zelda series, one of, one of the one of the classics. And in that score, Koji Kondo explores all sorts of different aesthetics. And there's uh, some music from uh, the the potion shop in the video game that sounds sort of uh, Eastern and just a, a little you know different, at least uh, to my ear. That really fascinated me. Let me let me play a little bit um, of it here, as uh, realized by a couple of guitar players. Anyway, you you get the idea there. That's uh, the Super Guitar Brothers on on mm. YouTube. I'll, I'll link that. But listening to the music from the video game and sort of spending some time with uh, these two guitarists' take on it, uh, it, it made me think about the ways in which we can take our training on our instruments 
and speak different aesthetic languages. You know, these these musical aesthetics connected with different cultures and make it work. We can talk a lot about retuning our instruments and mm -hmm. all of these so-called extended techniques, but I think it's really important to think about the fact that we don't have to do all of that to engage different types of aesthetics. Again, make our uh, instruments speak different languages. I've been turning on the drone and uh, and I've been trying to play in different aesthetics on the bassoon, you know, and it makes you realize uh, the colonization of our training. So when I play something that I want to sound Eastern with a drone, I have to keep myself from living in these uh, major scales or even these minor scales right. and exploring what I would define as different modes. But that's even still a centering of the of the Western teaching. So you know, just broadening our our uh, definitions of what it means to play our instruments. What 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 did you you think of, about that performance it, it it definitely sounded like a guitar but mm -hmm. it could easily have been mistaken for a different instrument considering the aesthetic that they were creating there it reminds me of my first slide guitar teacher his name is jeff ray and while he would play slide blues he also had an influence in eastern thought and meditation and things uh, you know um, rai cooter and vishwa mohan bhat did a, a whole album of it of, mm -hmm. uh, it's called a meeting by the river a, a combination of a vena or sitar in type instrument and the guitar you know there's there's a really nice relationship between them but um the the point that i was going to make that makes it remind yeah it reminds me of jeff ray and he always played in an open tuning so i'm mm -hmm. wondering if that lends itself more to that style i don't know yeah um i also have recently been watching videos of this guy who has an atonal guitar the fretboard mm. is wild it looks like you know a piece of modern art or something yeah but yeah. he gets some amazing sounds out of it and that's in standard tuning so yeah, yeah. i'm not sure and, how, and then did again I answer? no yeah and then it, but again phrases like standard tuning standard right, as defined right. by whom or as defined by what and yeah there I, I met someone last summer with a microtonal clarinet so he cool. had uh, holes and stuff drilled in that could play notes between the our, our right. half our uh, western exactly. half steps and all of that sort of thing. I think there's a lot of room for that, and I think it's really cool to think about the different ways we can build instruments. Um, I also don't want us to rely on all so-called alternative tunings or different types of instruments when we talk about our ability and ultimately our responsibility to take our artistry and engage more audiences all the way into as i as i began with sort of teaching ourselves to speak different languages with our instruments you know with my bassoon getting out of that uh european sort of tradition and aesthetic and trying to make it sound Indian or making it sound um, Chinese or Japanese or or South American. You know, I, I mentioned the project with uh, Free Radicals. I'm playing Latin licks that I have to, mm. you know, sit down with a little bit. And then, of course, if you want to even back up from that part of the conversation, just the act, uh, the act of playing the instruments, we have to talk about the musical language of notation and how we can expand that, maybe developing our ears in a better way. I'm pretty good at playing things by ear. If I hear something, I, I can usually get 
get it going on on whatever instrument I'm I'm sitting in front of. There are so many of us, and by us I mean those of us trained in the in the Western classical tradition who don't have those ear skills that other musicians have. Even the spirit of improvisation. Shout out to um, uh, Nirmala Raja Sekar, who mm-hmm. we've had uh, on Trilogy. Where we talk about her all the time. I remember her uh, talking one time before a performance saying one of her biggest challenges in playing music in the United States is that she just wasn't used to sticking with what's on the page. Sure. She often found herself just wanting to play something else. Right. And, and, and I feel her. What if we could experience that on the level of an orchestra? If somehow 50, 60, 70 musicians can create aesthetics and sounds and relationships with each other when we talk about improvisation and getting the music off the page, all the way to creating music in a so-called different language for the uh, the, the audiences. So I, I hope all that makes sense. Sometimes Imagine I feel the call like, and response. Yeah, it, it would really be incredible. And then incorporating the audience into it, oh my gosh. But don't you think, I mean, doesn't there need to be a jumping off point or some sort of a framework for them to work within though? I mean- I think you don't I, just say you don't just treat it like getting on a Southwest flight. Right. And go, everybody get on. Right. Right. <laughs> See, that's why I don't fly Southwest. <laughs> um, but I think, again, step one comes with musicians who have been trained in the Western classical tradition to get uh, your instrument right, right, right. and work on yourself. Right playing in different aesthetics, getting outside of those scales that we have spent so many years practicing and seeing what it feels like to turn on a drone and try to sound differently. And of course, we can talk about the conversation of cultural appropriation and all of that thing. You know, you need to always think about where you're getting these things from. And attribute. Um, but I, I just, I, I found myself fascinated and deep in thought at the idea of playing in different languages and by languages, again, musical aesthetics that are uh, that are uh, uh, connected with cultures that are very different from our own. Anyway, to all of that, a recording I wanted to share. It's a um, it's a raga. It's a morning raga. I, I really appreciated this performance because the musician is uh, taking a lot of those um, Indian and Eastern aesthetics and fitting the guitar into it all the way to the point to where you might not even think you're listening to a guitar. I think it's really brilliant and an excellent display of playing music in languages that aren't necessarily ours. So here's a little bit of this music. It's performed by Raga here by Hav, a morning Raga performed on guitar. beautiful but if you were just listening you might not think that was a guitar which i I wouldn't not right off but that is definitely a guitar and the and the technique is incredible if he can play that you know sliding all over the fretboard of course he can play rodrigo or you know what whatever the the uh, other concertos and and pieces you know uh uh, I'm, I'm trying to think of the guitar composers i'm i'm blanking right now but it's okay you know um 
it's 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 really incredible to think about the possibilities if we as musicians as instrumentalists stretch our technique to be more inclusive and more engaging of different aesthetics. Huge bravo there. I, I really love that. I've been listening to that on repeat many, many, many times. All right, well, we're getting into the uh, third movement. Today's guest is Brian Crumpler. I had the great honor of meeting Brian at a virtual conference uh, last year. Brian Crumpler um, is a, a composer. Um, he uh, is exploring some really interesting things within the world of composition, including the intersection of music and neurology what is it what does it mean to think about a melody and be able to translate that I, I, I don't I can't remember if we cover it in the conversation or not but one of the things he told me was that he would be on the train in New York and think of this really incredible me uh, melody but he doesn't have staff paper or a computer or anything so what would it look like for that to not get lost and what mm. is the technology we need anyway uh exploring some really um incredible things but of course as a, a black composer uh through his music addresses uh race culture and many other things so I'm really looking forward to uh, sharing uh, our conversation today. To get into the conversation, I wanted to uh, share a bit of one of his pieces of music. He has a clarinet concerto, his first clarinet concerto that um, includes some really incredible, incredible sounds. We're going to listen to a little bit of the second movement of it today to get into our conversation. Here's the clarinet concerto number one for clarinet in A minor. And here's my conversation with the composer, Brian A. Crumpler. There's, there's, there's generally the struggle, the, the struggle. Um, a lot of people say, you know, ask me how I'm doing in New York, and I'm just saying, you know, I'm just participating in the struggle. You know, think, <laughs> people yeah. think, people think it's, uh, you know, a, a sort of glamorous lifestyle, a free lifestyle, luxurious lifestyle. Um, I held an event uh, several weeks ago, um, end of October, and you know, just because I was here in this space that you said was fancy. <laughs> you know, people thought that yeah. I had this luxurious lifestyle, you know, not knowing that I had just come out of a homeless shelter before I got here. So, oh my goodness. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's a tough situation uh, for a lot of us to be in, you know, being so accomplished and uh, so hardworking and, um, and then just coming out into the world and, you know, being, you know, hitting a wall um, and not having anyone to sort of relate to on that level. Oh, okay. So, you know, considering the unique challenges of trying to exist in New York, do you, you know, see yourself as persevering? Are you lifelong? What, what What's your relationship in, in this setting looking like for you? Uh, I have a, a long-term commitment to living in New York. Um, I was very intentional and purposeful about moving here to, to be in an area that uh, was very supportive of the arts. Mm -hmm. Um, and just looking at the data, um, I came from before, before I moved here, I lived in Atlanta. Uh, Atlanta was a great place to engage with other black people in the arts. Um, but public funding in Georgia pales in comparison to public funding for the arts in New York city. I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's hundreds to thousands of times more per capita in New York. Uh, yeah. 
relative to Georgia. Uh, so there, uh, you know, even though it's difficult, there are a lot more opportunities to uh, sort of, you know, get your foot in the door in certain places to get ahead um, and, you know, quote unquote, make it. Right, right. And you spoke to uh, the, the, you know, the, the issue of being one or two black clarinetists, black musicians at an audition where there are two, three hundred other folks. I wonder if you could speak to that idea when it comes to this public funding. Is it a is it a similar sort of situation where, you know, you're competing among folks who don't look like you, who don't have your experiences and, you know, uh, the idea of diversity being such high stakes? Is, is it similar to auditions in that way? It is, um, but I think in New York, like I said, it's about the numbers. There are far more people who are engaged in this practice mm -hmm. in New York. Uh, and because the, the, the public resources that are available to the people in the arts, um, it's, the odds are, are much greater. Um, uh, for example, there was the City Artist Corps um, program that was launched last June in the middle of the pandemic. In the, in the middle of the pandemic. And uh, that was $25 million allocated to 3,000 artists over wow, okay. a period of three cycles. Um, in other grant programs, it's, it's usually, you know, smaller sums, but very significant amounts of money that are allocated maybe to one person or to one organization. Right. When we talk about large sums of money for a large amount of people versus, you know, moderate sums of money for one or two people, I wonder if there's one side of that discussion that you lean more toward. I mean, you know, it, I've, I've been the beneficiary personally of, of both of those sort of paradigms. Do you think one is better? Do you think one is more equitable? What are your thoughts there? Um, like you, I've also been on... Uh on the side of, on both sides of that. Mm -hmm. um, I think the larger sums to more people is more equitable. Um, you're just providing much more opportunity to many more people, um, especially in a space, you know, with 9 million residents. Yeah. Uh, a large percentage of whom are involved in uh, this craft. Yeah, I find all of this really interesting because we don't often just think about uh, the uh, the life and the and the challenges of the composers when it comes to the giving and all those sorts of things. I, I I sort of challenge philanthropic organizations because you know those endowments allow for so much more. But from my perspective, the idea of keeping an endowment forever, keeping an endowment in perpetuity is a barrier, you know, for, for more giving and, 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 and for more art to, to, to come from that giving. I mean, what, what, where do you think we're going or where we need to go as we continue to talk about anti-racism in some circles, even anti-capitalism in the arts? Is there a, is there movement from your perspective that needs to, uh, to happen when it comes to even more equitable ways to give and even more means and resources for composers? I think we are, as a nation, moving uh, more in that direction. Mm -hmm. uh, in some ways, it's becoming uh, popular, I guess, to focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yeah. Um, I, I caution myself about dealing with organizations with those policies because I, uh, I tend to look at their history 
like what have they been doing up until this point that they've mm -hmm. made these declarations about including more people uh, in their organizations and you know in the things that they that they do uh, publicly. Um, give you an example. I think it was Wigmore Hall. They had this this huge grant program for composers, and they wanted to focus on di uh, diversity mm -hmm. specifically for. Uh, I believe they call it minority ethnic composers in the UK. Um, All this nomenclature. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They have. I mean, they have their own names for things. You know, we have we have our own. Um, but uh, I looked at their history and I was like, okay, what have they done in the past right. to 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 make these moves? Is it just something they're doing for optics? Or are they really committed to, to including people who have been historically marginalized and excluded from these spaces in yeah. classical music? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I just I exercise caution when I deal with, with these types sort of, of organizations and um, you know deciding on you know where, what I'm going to invest my time and energy into yeah. uh, to be part of those organizations. You're reminding me of uh, some prose that sort of centered the uh, the conference uh, that we met at the International Society for Black Musicians. We were talking a lot about uh, the Negro Artists on the Racial Mountain by uh, by Langston Hughes. And when mm -hmm. you talk about using uh, caution when it comes to these organizations centering diversity and these these other words, you're reminding me of how he began that essay. He was you know basically talking about the the writer who was more interested in being a, a famous poet and not necessarily a famous black poet or a famous Negro poet, I think are the, right, right, the, right. the, the words there. I wonder uh, what your thoughts are on that. Do you share Langston Hughes' admonishment of the idea of not wanting to be known as a black whatever, or, or do you have different ideas? Uh, I think my ideas are slightly different. Okay. Um, like earlier in my career, I was really adamant about um, of being labeled an African-American composer, or, sorry, African-American clarinetist or black clarinetist. Yeah. And that was a, that was the, that was sort of a, not a marketing strategy, but at the time, you know, the internet was booming and social, sorry, not social, but uh, search engine optimization was a, oh, sure. a, a big thing. And people that are looking for people like me are going to be typing in those keywords. Right. So it was necessary for me to always include like in my biography, on my website, you know, those, those labels uh, to distinguish myself from everyone else. Um, I also think that it's uh, not, necessary, not necessary to remove that part of my identity to, to identify with, you know, some other aspect of my life, my job or career. Mm -hmm. um, so I, you know, I use those terms with pride when I attach them to my craft as a composer, as a clarinetist, as a musician. Um, and I don't shy away from that. Uh, at the same time, I, I do understand how people just want to be part of the norm. But the reality in society is we, it's not, it's just not that way. Yeah. You type, you type in baby in Google images and you come up with a whole page full of white babies. Right. You right. don't find anybody else. Uh, and that's just, that's just the reality of the society that we live in today. Um, so yeah, I'm a little bit on the fence, but you know, I, like I said, I, I use those terms with pride and, uh, I don't feel like I need to remove them, 
um, in order to be or feel seen. Yeah. And it wasn't only an issue of Langston Hughes saying, oh, you should be proud to be a black artist and to be known as such. He went as far as to say people who aren't willing to uh, to to bear those labels ultimately just want to be white or a part of uh, the norm as as uh, it, it is defined by the arts here at least uh, today. I mean, mm -hmm. again, do you go that far? Uh, is in your opinion, is the person is the clarinetist, the composer who wants to be known as a great this and not a great black this actually aspiring to whiteness? No, <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, I, I, I know that there are people out there who believe that and, uh, you know, will speak to that. Um, but uh, I really hate the idea of, of being accomplished in something uh, and, and treating that success as um, self-hatred or um, trying to be white. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like I'm trying to be a great musician, trying to be a great composer. Uh, but I know when people are looking for people like me, they have to use those labels. They have to use those terms that, ident that, that identify, oh, that we identify with. So what is the relationship between your blackness, the way you view those labels and those perceptions and the art itself it, it, are they separable are they inseparable for, for as far as your processes of of composing uh as far as my process of composing uh, i think they're completely separable like i mean I, I of course i compose from my own experience yeah uh and everything that i compose is sort of not everything but of course if i'm doing something very formulaic or algorithmic that's completely separate that's just me expressing myself mm -hmm. um and I just happen to be black doing it. So when it comes to these folks who may be specifically looking for the black composer for the sake of DEI or 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 whatever, you know, um, I found or that just something or just something different. Sure, I've I found that uh, there's been the creation of what a lot of people are calling the black excellence industrial complex. The idea that we've turned. Uh, you know, uh, platforming women composers and black composers, BIPOC composers into this thing that actually only benefits a few. There are three, four, five uh, black composers out there that are getting the big orchestral commissions and everyone else is, is just sort of fighting over the crumbs or, or, or going after your going after the crumbs. I wonder what your thoughts mm -hmm. are uh, on that. Do you see yourself as one of the composers that the Chicago Phil or New York or L.A. Uh, is going to call as quickly as, you know, fill in the blank famous <laughs> black composer these days. Do you see that as an issue? Is that a thing? It is an issue, but like, it's like, I'm not even chasing, chasing those things. Uh -huh. uh, okay. I, I feel as an artist, my, my job as an artist is to express myself in the way that I see fit, mm. uh, to make a statement in the way that I see fit. I don't, if someone's going to commission me, they're going to commission me. If they're not going to commission me, whatever, you know? Um, like, I'm not writing music to try to appeal to these organizations. I'm writing music because it's the music that comes to my head. Mm. And that's, that's it, point blank. Yeah. Um, like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not chasing, I'm not chasing these big orchestras. Uh, and like I mentioned at the, 
at the ISBM conference, um, a lot of the spaces that I work in as a, as a composer are digital. It's all software-based, uh, virtual instruments, uh, a lot of production work in uh, digital audio workstations, uh, that sort of thing. So I don't have to be reliant upon those types of organizations in order to get my musical ideas out. Yeah, and, and I definitely hear and, and fully understand, you know, as an artist, the expression being the point of it, not chasing this thing or, or chasing that thing. With that being said, we all have to eat. And in this capitalist structure that oppresses us all, you know, there are some considerations that have to be made about, you know, how the art can be turned into, into resources. How do you navigate that on the digital platforms, on the digital stages? Uh, with a lot of marketing, <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, a lot of marketing. Um, I'm I'm very lucky uh, to be in the position position where I am now uh, because I have a lot of access to uh, support resources to make things happen a lot more efficiently than in the past. Um, yeah, I mean, I hold I hold multiple jobs. I hold second jobs. I do freelance work. Um, those are the things that also, you know, keep food on the table, clothes on my back. Yeah. Um, but in that same vein, like I've become so efficient as a composer that uh, uh, that all of that side work, those side hustles that I do, do not interfere with my ability to create. Um, Speak, speak and, to more to efficiency as a composer. What does what does that mean? Being able to write things quickly or what? Yeah, uh, like having like a lot of people sit around and they they fool around with with melodies, you know, things that they think are going to be cool, and they play it back. And oh, I don't want to do that. I'm not like that. Um, I one of the things that I created was a, a system of musical cryptography, uh, which is sort of a rapid melody forming system. Hmm. Um, and that gives me a, a very quick starting point for musical ideas to flow. Um, and so, uh, for example, the, the symphony that I, that I just released, I wrote that in like three, three or four weeks. And it is literally the longest single stream of consciousness that I've had as a composer ever mm -hmm. in the you know the the 10 11 12 years that i have you know been pursuing this professionally um my very first piece was my clarinet concerto yep and that took me six months to write but took me 14 years to conceptualize wow so you know in terms of efficiency being able to write a 34 minute symphony in less than a month versus writing a 23 minute concerto over a period of 14 years, you know, that's what I mean by efficiency. I've become better at um, uh, my notation practice, using shorthand, uh, better at, you know, using the software, getting my process streamlined, uh, because it's, it's very important when you are a composer with a lot of musical ideas flowing in your head to be able to notate that quickly and accurately, it helps the muse sort of fades. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, and one of the things I've been working on at New Lab uh, is uh, trying to integrate neurotechnology in order to make that process even faster. 
Wow. Wow. So connecting the the uh, composition uh, platforms and and uh, and software to the brain to talk to I'm, I'm intrigued. Exactly. Tell me more. <laughs> exactly. Uh, uh, well, we've made a lot of advances. Well, I say we, but the industry has made a lot of advances uh, in uh, brain-computer interfaces and uh, tapping into patterns, uh, spike patterns in brainwave activity uh, that can be uh, uh, connected or tied to or associated with um, specific bodily functions or actions hmm. and right now uh, a lot of companies have been able to to do it to control computers to give people who are disabled or paralyzed the ability to text on a phone yeah use a computer use a laptop or a computer just solely by thinking about the the, the motions or the actions that their body would be doing to create those things and one of the things that a lot of uh, a lot of these companies have not done yet is tap into musical imagery, which is uh, different from motor imagery. Mm -hmm. Motor the motor cortex just controls our you know our hands, our feet, blinking, um, anything that we do that requires an action, uh, a physical action that's linked to the motor cortex. But the uh, musical imagery, which is you know, activated by several parts of the brain um, uh, has not really been studied too greatly. Um, and that's what I intend to study here in order to figure out a way to extract those patterns, use machine learning and artificial intelligence in order to figure out patterns in, uh, in that brainwave activity and then associate that with specific tones that would be notated on paper or on a musical score. Wow. Wow. Well, I, I want to back up uh, and briefly talk about two of your uh, compositions. You mentioned a few minutes ago, your first symphony and, you know, through uh, listening to it and uh, reading the, the different subtitles for the different sections, I was really fascinated by your inclusion of a black peat section. I wonder, um, you know, I, there are a lot of black folks who aren't familiar with that European tradition, that European holiday tradition. I wonder if you'll talk about your proximity to the character of Black Pete and why he appeared in your first symphony. Okay. Uh, well, when I first graduated undergrad, uh, 2001, my first job was with a tech firm in Amsterdam. Moved to Amsterdam, uh, moved into this place and this, uh, um, this guy showed up to my door, thought I was made of chocolate. And that threw me off. I just kind of laughed it off. I didn't realize, you know, what the whole story behind it was until Christmas came around. And I mean, I he said that people. to you? Oh, you look like you're made of chocolate. No, 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 no. He actually said it to one of my housemates. <laughs> like, who's gracious. this guy? Is he, is he made of chocolate? Uh, he was actually uh, mentally challenged. Uh, in a lot of respects. So this this guy's only exposure to black people was through this character, Black Pete, which appeared historically as uh, Santa's sidekick. Um, we, I say sidekick. Yeah, I would use a different S word, but. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the actual word that they use is knecht, 
which is spelled K-N-E-C-H-T, and it translates to slave. Okay, there we are. Um, so yeah, he was he was he was sent a slave, and he goes around, um, you know, leaving kids either candies and chocolates on their their Santa Claus holiday, which is December fifth, uh, or uh, leaves them like sticks and rocks in their in their stocking. Okay. Uh, so that was his only exposure to black people being, you know, sheltered in his home and everything. Uh, but he lived across the street from where I lived, and that was that. Uh, but the the first exposure that I had to black people was around Christmas that year, um, where I saw all these people walking around in blackface, uh, blackface, curly-haired wigs, red-painted lipstick, mm-hmm. big hoop earrings. I can't imagine clown outfits, and I was just like. What is this? Um, and of course, the the way it was explained to me was that you know there was this guy who climbed down the chimney to leave these candies or these sticks and rocks, and he got dirty down the chimney. Uh, so I was like, okay. And then I blew it off, and then I had a good time in Amsterdam, not even really worrying about it. Good for you for to uh, to blow it off. I don't know if I could have. <laughs> well, I mean, I was you know I was fresh out of college. Um, I went to a predominantly white institution. Uh, I was completely ignorant of the culture. Uh, I just know that I wanted to get out of the country and that I had a job offer. And I was really focused on on that. Sure. Uh, not so much, you know, the, the, the cultural taboos. Sure. Uh, that, I, that I grew to understand um, were indicative of blackface racism. Um, and it's, it's been something that I have sort of fought against uh, much more as, as I spent time in Europe because this character you know, was going to all of the different countries, going to Spain, going to France, going to the Netherlands, going to Belgium, going to Germany. Uh, and when you get to Germany, uh, they don't have a black peak. They have a Krampus, which is a black devil. Oh, even better. <laughs> <laughs> Literally a black flesh-eating devil. Uh, and he goes around eating children. Um, and so th- the idea of Krampus is to sort of scare children into being good. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's just it's just been diluted and watered down over time, over the centuries, um, you know, starting in the 1800s. Uh, and it wasn't until about 1900 that he was actually, uh, became black pete so when it comes to uh taking something you know so racist so harmful uh for so many people and translating that into music you also have in your catalog black things in a a more celebratory way uh but maybe uh positioned to sound a little I don't know, villainous or, or spooky. I'm, I'm, I think I'm, I'm talking specifically about uh, your setting of your recent setting of lift every voice. So I wonder is, oh, yeah. is, is the process different or, or similar taking a racist trope and turning that into a piece of music, you know, written by a black man versus something that we celebrate the Negro national anthem and that being set to a piece of music, but in a different way. Yeah. Uh, the, the thing about black Pete is it's, it's, the the movement is in stark contrast to everything else in the piece. 
Uh, it's very calm. Yep. It's very relaxing. It's in a reduced chamber music setting, uh, which is flute, guitar, and electric bass. Um, and it sort of represents uh, a tradition that arose at well that I came to to understand was the the Christmas bird counting tradition okay. with the Audubon Society. Um, and if you're out there <laughs> and you've paid any attention to what's going on in you know black culture over the past you know, couple of years, you've heard about Amy Cooper and right. Christian Cooper. Right. Um, and Christian Cooper was, of course, a birder who was part of the, the Audubon Society here in New York. Um, and I actually, you know, felt like I was one of the only people who was protesting for him for a very, very long time uh, in sort of developing a relationship with birds and being out there uh, sort of studying birds um, and you know, trying to uh, claim, claim space as a black man just minding his business. Right. So uh, that, you know, that section, that Black Pete section is, is where Black Pete is sort of called in his thought to be sort of Santa's sidekick or, you know, the guy who's going to vouch for Santa and all of his good deeds. And instead he's just like, you know, whatever, I'm just going to go and I'm going to count some birds. Yeah. Enjoy okay. my time rela relaxing, you know, out in the fields and, you know, minding my own business. So that's what he eventually does and Santa gets convicted and then the Grinch's plot uh, which is part of the overall symphony ends up getting executed. Um, so that's part of the Black Pete story. As far as uh, Lift Every Voice, um, that started out as uh, sort of an obsession that I had with water and the phrase be water, be water, my friend, mm. um, where when you're at low points in your life, you just kind of have to like be like water and fill up those low points until you can rise above the surface or rise with the water um, you know, as, as, uh, things progress in your life. Um, and I heard these water droplets that they just, it kept repeating the same pattern. And I was like, Oh, this kind of sounds like this phrase and lift every voice and sing. And it starts out as the opener. And I actually, uh, have the water drops at the very beginning. And then I start sort of mimicking that with uh, the piano and what I was hearing in my head at the time that I was hearing these water drops. And that sort of morphed into uh, this version of Lift Every Voice and Sing, which sort of uh, pays an homage to uh, Martin Luther King and his death uh, and sort of the terror that arose out of his, his murder. Mm -hmm. um, and sort of you know, empathizing with that, putting myself in that situation uh, sort of to cope with my own experiences with, uh, you know, being shot at and, you know, being a victim of attempted murder and um, other things in my past. Um, so I tend to do that a lot with my music, taking uh, bad experiences and transforming that into something beautiful uh, so that, you know, when I uh, arise from those, those, uh, traumas, uh, I can look back on it and, and sort of understand whether I've healed from those experiences. Hmm. Um, hmm. and you know, the lift every voice is one of those, is one of those pieces where I, I get choked up every time because it reminds me of those times where I have been a victim of these crimes. 
Uh, so I know I haven't fully healed from those situations. So a lot of times I have to sort of step back from the music that I create. Uh, and then when I come back to it, that sort of gives me a, a good indication of, of uh, whether I've healed from those experiences. I want to loop us all the way back around uh, as we close back to the, uh, the Langston Hughes piece. But before I do mm -hmm. that, how can folks uh, learn more about you, learn more about your music, and uh, of course, purchase some of it as well? Sure. I have a website. Um, it's, uh, well, it's hard to say because it's not a .com website, but I do have a website that's based off of my middle name, Ahmad. Amadeus Bozar. Uh, that website is ahmade.us. And I'll have that uh, in the description of this for folks to be able to uh, click in and visit and and uh, and and give your music some uh, resources and some energy and some ears. Um, but so the, where I wanted to end, um, I want to go back to the, as I said, the Langston uh, Hughes piece. I'm going to read a, a little bit of the end here. It says, let the blare of Negro jazz bands and the bellowing voice of Bessie Smith singing the blues penetrate the closed ears of the colored near intellectuals until they listen and perhaps understand. Let Paul Robeson singing Waterboy and Rudolph Fisher writing about the streets of Harlem and Gene Toomer holding the heart of Georgia in his hands and Aaron Douglas drawing strange black fantasies cause the smug Negro middle class class to turn from their white, respectable, ordinary books and papers to catch a glimmer of their own beauty. So as we talk about, uh, you know, the, the challenges, unique challenges of Black artists, Black composers, I feel like one of them is what Langston Hughes is speaking to here, the sort of respectability that some Black folks see out of other Black folks when it comes to uh, moving us all forward, rising, raising all of our boats up. I wonder, you know, as we close, what, what is your uh, reaction to Langston's words there and if they have any application to your life and your artistry? Yeah, I think his words are very powerful. Uh, like I said, I've had my own uh, struggles with uh, being an accomplished person and having that being associated with whiteness instead of my very clear blackness. Mm -hmm. um, like I, uh, I, I also think that in this day and age, uh, we have to um, understand that there are people who can sort of relate to multiple people and there are people in the black community who can do that there are people in the black community who can't um and uh, respectability politics that that has its place in some areas it doesn't in others uh i think that we all have to respect each other and that respect must come first however you intend to do that um i think it's best by best done by just being who you are. Um, you know, we all grew up in different environments with different experiences. We have shared experiences and commonalities that, and intersectionalities that, uh, that others can relate to. Um, but it's, it's, it's important not to lose yourself in that process. But, I'll, I, but I simply don't think that that needs to be associated with whiteness.
Lift Every Voice and Sing as composed and arranged by Brian Crumpler. Huge shout out to Brian for joining me on Triloquy. I'll have links to uh, Brian's band camp so that y'all can support the cause and listen to his music as well. Some really incredible things there. Scott, one of the last things that we talked about uh, in our conversation was battling and dealing with respectability politics as it plays a role in our artistic lives. I wonder if you can speak to that specifically when it comes to working in radio. When I think about respectability politics and radio, especially public radio, I think about battling the uh, the sort of ingrained desire to have that news anchor voice or maybe the prototypical NPR voice where you talk very softly with uh, talking about me lots now. of uh, breaths and uh, you know lots of space between the ideas you know the the prototype so is that <laughs> no shade to anybody um, necessarily not necessarily have you ever found yourself in any point of your career battling respectability politics in that way coming to the microphone as you and not as a character or a parody or a version of you mm-hmm. sure. Yeah, it wasn't until, I don't know, probably, when did I start there? 2001, when I started doing the morning show at KVNO, when I really started to develop my voice. Because leading up to that, I had just been doing impressions of what I heard everybody else do. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't I didn't have any guidance that way. And seeing as how uh, it was, quote unquote, radio friendly, what I was doing... I guess I was politically respectable in that space. Mm-hmm. Now, when we started Triloquy, you brought up once before, like we interviewed Melissa Dundas, who's a classical guitarist, and I had some fun and I did the devil horns behind you two guys. Mm-hmm. I don't even think you saw me doing it. No. Because <laughs> you're just smiling like Reagan when I'm going, woo. Mm-hmm. Uh, I got emails. <laughs> I mean, the, the hook yeah. em horns was right. outside of the respectability that, you know, uh, a classical radio host should have. I think and that's very interesting. I have had, um, I would say, 30% of the women that I meet online, when they find out that I work in classical music, they go, oh, I've, I don't know anything about that. You say they go. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. They, they give you a flat. <laughs> the the last woman that did it is like look she said look I'm not an intellectual I don't I just I just don't think we're gonna get it I said I neither am I you don't even <laughs> this is so, so here un- we are this is so unnecessary here we are the decolonization of classical music is not just about black folks like me who love to holler and preach at folks in a microphone we can all benefit from a renewed approach and a renewed definition of what that means you yeah. know um. Something you said is is very poignant. I want to point it out before we get into the fourth movement. You said that you were imitating, in the early years of your radio career, you were imitating the people that you heard. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to Black folks, specifically on the forefront of this new change and things like public radio, if all we have to listen to and uh, use as a point of reference is white folks, think about the pressure that puts on us to develop our own voice and to put ourselves out there as ourselves and being virtually among the first people to do that mm-hmm, the first people mm-hmm. to present to these to to these these radio audiences a way that reflects our perspectives and that is completely different than most people have done it that's something that has to again early we were talking about neo racism that's one of those conversations that needs to be put in the room mm. there there is no one 
for uh well i'm not going to say that but uh i don't know when it when it comes to finding an example and having mentors and that sort of thing that's always been a challenge in my career not only as a, a broadcaster and a content creator but as a bassoonist when mm. i was in college people would ask oh well what bassoonist do you just really look up to or who's your favorite bassoonist none of y'all right you know that that was that was always my answer because no one was really in the professional bassoonist space, putting forward the ideas and the aesthetics that I had. Anyway, all, no, that's all the a, conversations we need to think about. That's why I brought up Omar Thomas, composer Omar Thomas. You know, he he did something about it. He started writing music that he wished he could have played coming up. So yeah, yeah. hopefully there's more of that going on. Well, I'm, I'm working hard to uh, get us out of here in under two hours. I know. From it. week to week. So uh, to, to transition us to our final movement, we're going to listen to... Uh, a white composer. His name is Frederick Delius, and he wrote a piece of music called The Florida Suite. He Let's did. listen to a little bit, and I'll give some context afterwards. Frederick Delius's Florida Suite used to be a piece of music that I really loved because of the story, the story of this guy from England whose parents sent him to Florida, and instead of doing what he told them to do, uh, or instead of doing what they told him to do, he wrote some music. I, I love the spirit of disobedience, and, and that's always the story that I would tell about it. When I'm doing more and more research over, over the years, I learned that the job that they sent him to go do is to manage an orange plantation down in Florida. So when he got back, he wrote a piece of music inspired by the so-called Negro melodies that he was hearing on that plantation and came up with this piece of music called the Florida Suite. That bit of history, I know can make a lot of classical listeners uncomfortable approximating something again. And just like you were talking about with uh, your second movement, something so beautiful with a dark underbelly or, mm -hmm. or a dark story connected to it. Mm -hmm. I understand that makes a lot of people very discom uh, discomfortable, uncomfortable, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, th thinking about and, uh, and approximating racism and slavery to this piece of music. But that is what has to happen. But maybe the story of that piece of music and how it's taught, at least down in Florida, is going to change in the coming years. Uh, for this week's Triloquy, I wanted to talk a little bit about this uh, new bill going down in Florida. I'm reading here from uh, Vanity Fair. It says, on Tuesday, a bill backed by Florida Governor Ron DeSantis that would prohibit public schools and private businesses from inflicting, quote, discomfort on white people during lessons or training about discrimination was approved by the state's Senate Education Committee, its first hurdle before becoming a law. Uh, the the Real quick, the, the first sentence of this article says, quick question for the group. Despite constantly claiming liberals are easily triggered snowflakes, are Republicans actually the most ridiculously sensitive people on earth? I think there's something to be said about that. But to, <laughs> but, but, but to, to keep us on point, down there in the state of Florida, they are building laws to make sure that the way that we think about and are taught and learn history centers white comfortability respectability politics, if you will. Uh, 
talk to me about dealing with the discomfort of working in anti-racist spaces and doing everything you can to promote equity uh, in in the arts. I know we've had the conversations. I know that there has been a lot of discomfort there for you. What in your white male opinion is a better way <laughs> to deal, listen to me, in your white male opinion, this, uh, this is called triloquy, to deal with that discomfort other than running to um, the government and saying, let's write a law so that I never feel this way again. What is a better use of that discomfort? I, I would say, first off, that if they're trying to ban something or if they're trying to write a law against it, then you've touched a nerve mm -hmm. and something is obviously getting some traction or there's something that needs to be hidden by their estimation. Yeah. Um, so it seems to me that the action has been well used, that, that the energy has been well used. Keep applying that pressure, maybe. I'm thinking about the way that this will manifest in music education specifically again i can talk about the florida suite mm. and i can talk about the way the story of frederick delius will have to be reframed because mm. of this legislation but that's one example how can we talk about um dvorak's i'm, I'm gonna be cussing mm -hmm. how can we talk about dvorak's so-called nigger quartet without people feeling a little uncomfortable or cringing a little bit. Well, How can we yeah. talk about things like race records in the early 20th century? We were talking about that with Rissy Palmer, shout out to her. How can we talk about the reason why these orchestras where the majority of them were built and established during Jim Crow? How can we talk about programming standards and why certain pieces of music weren't included in the canon until the, you know, until whatever year, especially these last few years? How can we honestly talk about those things and center white discomfort as something that we don't want to touch on. Uh, uh, go ahead. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm just saying that, you know, it's all about audience, you know, because some, there are, there are some white folks uh, that are among my listenership on the air who I give them a lot of bail because they are open to these stories and they don't, you know, get all but hurt about it. Right. Not everybody is at that point. Yeah. And some people might never get there, man. And, you know, so it's all about audience. And the thing is, like I was saying before, the point is not about making anyone feel guilty or ashamed or any of that. That that I, I don't even think about that. The point is making sure that we give people a chance to really understand the truth behind this music that we share and talk about, the truth behind this history. And if that history makes some people feel uncomfortable, that's their business. But the, we, we owe it to ourselves to learn the real history of America and certainly the real history of so-called classical music mm. in the United States. And if we're centering discomfort there, if, if we're trying to make everyone feel good, specifically we're trying to make white folks feel good, we're missing out on so much. And that is what I'm thinking about. It's not about anyone feeling guilty or me having the upper hand on anyone. It's about me and other people actually knowing the story of, again, Frederick Delius, mm -hmm. Dvorak, all of all of these people so that we have a different and a, and a more genuine relationship with this music. I, I put it on, I think I retweeted it or either put it on my Instagram. You know, there are white folks who think back to those days, those dark days, and align themselves with 
the the slave owners and the folks with the whip and then there are folks who align themselves with the white abolitionists that mm -hmm. existed back in those days mm -hmm. so why why is there an, an automatic approximation to the bad of that unless of course you know that Peepaw and Meemaw don't want an N-word at the table unless you know that your uncle or your auntie slips in uh, the word coon or whatever every time y'all are in the car. I think that is where the guilt comes from. The guilt does not come from the history. The guilt comes from within yourself. Anyway, I'm not mm -hmm. trying to call nobody out. And, and I'm not if, if the bullets hit you, let them hit you. But the point is, we have to leave room to learn the real history of this music for us to have a way forward in decolonizing the art form and making it relevant. This is something that we all should care about. And this is something that every single professional, so-called professional in the industry of classical music and, uh, and instrumental music, we need, we need to be angry at this. We need to take action because if something like this spreads throughout much of the country, much of the South, that means there are gonna be generations of people who don't actually know the real history of y'all's beloved European music, much less the music that has been codified here in the United States that we should consider classical. Just like musical practice, just like working out and all of those other things, uh, the discomfort therein results in something greater, something bigger. You know, we were talking about Fight Club, uh, fa fa facing those uncomfortable uh, things, how that is needed toward growth. I think it's the same thing with these conversations. Let's not think about being ashamed or feeling guilty or even trying to make someone feel ashamed or make someone feel guilty. Let's talk about the truth and let's talk about unearthing it no matter how uncomfortable it is so that we all have a chance of enjoying this art form and other art forms and its most genuine uh, its most genuine iteration, I'll say. Uh, rest in peace, rest in power again to all of those uh, we talked about in the first movement, especially uh, warm thoughts to Regina King and everyone over there. And we will see y'all next week.